awoke this morning to the news of a bunch of murders in a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. And I was pretty distraught um, because of friends in Boulder, um, of, of a senior who's graduating this year from this ministry, and she's going to work at a college ministry in Boulder, probably uh, among students who shop at that grocery store. And, and this is on the heels of a couple of weeks of thinking about, reading stories about, praying for, and, and talking with Asian brothers and sisters in our country who are crying out, who are angry, not just about racially motivated murders in and around Atlanta, but about a, a system and um, the, the, the ubiquitous nature of hate crimes against Asians in our culture. And anyway, um, all this is leading somewhere for tonight, but I, I just wanna pause for just a moment and say, friends, the 24-hour news cycle and the endless stories of violence, of hate, of murder, of crime, of injustice, of tragedy that, are, that, that we're aware of and become aware of daily. Don't we know the capacity for and the propensity to commit evil that exists within the human heart? And don't we know yet? Haven't we lived, everybody listening to this, watching this, haven't we had enough life yet to know that the answer isn't in here, that we need help. That doesn't mean we're off the hook, quite frankly. Some of us would talk like maybe we are, and I know that that creates theological problems for some of us, that we need to be saved and yet we can still be held accountable. But when you're facing the crimes that, that, are, that, are, that are present to so many people in America right now, or in the world, when you're, when you're facing the injustices that are present to people who are suffering, honestly, it makes sense that people are held accountable to their sins. Even though we're enslaved to them, and need to be saved. Gosh, this evil is everywhere. And today, the reason it's so on my heart for tonight's sermon isn't just because of today and, and the text we're looking at, but it because um, I, I saw the news today about this Boulder shooting or the shootings in Boulder um, on Facebook and there was a comment that said, please don't let one of our um, state representatives just say we want thoughts and prayers. I'm sick and tired of that. And I could identify with it a little bit. It sounds like the Bible in some ways, the, the psalmists saying, Lord, why aren't you hearing our cries? And, and this, this sort of tiredness of crying out day and night. And I know that there's a weariness because all of the thoughts and prayers haven't stopped these things from continuing to happen. And if you could zoom out just far enough, what we'd also see is that throughout history, um, new governments and new institutions haven't stopped the propensity for evil either. Surely there are more and less just systems, surely. And, and just like the reality of sin and evil existing throughout all generations and in all governments doesn't mean we should stop trying to institute policies to curb injustice and to, pr and to promote justice and, and, and to extend mercy to some people. Of course we should do that. In the same way, we should also continue to pray. Goodness, prayer is one of the two ways we get things done in this world. One of the two ways God has given us to get things done. We ought to do those things, but I can understand the weariness. That says, I'm tired of the talk. 
I'm tired of Christians saying, and I know there's people who aren't Christians who are praying too. I'm quite sure in the West when somebody's talking about thoughts and prayers and talking about the Christian instinct culturally right now to say to every injustice, my thoughts and prayers are with you. I get the weariness. There's a second thing that's happening though as it pertains to this text tonight. Christians are to be people who are marked by love. Not um, as people who, when injustice happens, say our thoughts and prayers are with you. And I'm quite sure that the person who posted that today hasn't seen examples of Christians who are sacrificially loving God and loving their neighbor. They're seeing Christians who, like me, were laying comfortably in our bed and, and hearted a post or liked a post or typed a few words. And then I got up and made my cup of coffee and took a shower and I felt some degree of sadness or guilt or or anger or whatever, uh, and then got on with my day. While there's real injustice and wounds existing in the world. And the point isn't to feel guilty. The point is to say we actually need God to come and we need his people to love. Let's pray and get into our text today. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Come soon, come quickly. And as we open your, your scriptures tonight, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you. And in light of this text, I know that it's not pleasing to you unless it produces the fruit of love in our lives. And so make us a people of love. And may that love look like the love we see in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, I feel a degree of a sort of somberness about things and probably a low level of anger that I'm kind of riding the wave of in this. And there, there's a little voice in my head that like wants to apologize to not being peppy right now or something because I know that like there's, um, that if you're in college, I know there's like some tiredness and weariness right now just from the semester and looking forward to what's next. And, um, but I, I think that there's something faithful of preaching out of the real substance of our lives and of engaging this stuff head on, okay? So there is a little edge probably to this tonight, and um, I actually hope you can identify with some of it. Um, I hope you at least feel known by some of it. I'm a human too, you know? Matthew 22. If you don't know this passage of Scripture, I am freaking excited to share it with you. Um, if you do, I hope that God etches it deeper into your bones. This is a marvelous passage of scripture. It's, it's said a couple different times in the gospel accounts, uh, in some different ways, but, um, let's start in verse 34, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, uh, says this, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. So Jesus had, had just spoken about the resurrection and he responded to the Sadducees in such a way that they stopped trying to test him because he outwitted them like he does. Um, and, and he gave them truth um, in a way that silenced them, right? And the crowds were astonished at his teaching and the Pharisees huddled up because they were like, we don't want that to happen to us, right? We want to question him. We want to trap him. We want to catch him in his in his. Um, claims to authority and in the ways in which Jesus identifies himself with God and we're offended by that. But, but we don't want what happened to the Sadducees to happen to us. So they huddle up and they devise sort of a question to trap him. See verse 35. And one of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, 
you, you should hear like, hey, smart guy. It's kind of the deal. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And the reason why this question might be a little trapping is because probably what they're hoping for is that Jesus would, would begin to sort of, um, you know, value certain laws over others, and then they would be able to say, ah, you see that, you know, um, you say, you're saying that some of these laws in, or some of these commands of God are not that important. And then they're going to come at him for how he's, you know, by himself sort of making a hierarchy out of God's commands. And what I want you to see is that Jesus isn't threatened by this. Not only does he make his own, he, he defies their parameters and he responds in the way, in a, in a free way. He is always free. Jesus is always free. And he responds out of his freedom in, in a pretty interesting way. Um, but he also doesn't shy away from summarizing the law or from talking about certain aspects of the law being sort of having more priority than others. Now, some of us have come from traditions or, or tribes of Christianity that talk about how like all sins are equal. They're just not. Um, it's, that's, I'd be happy to talk to you about that one-on-one -on -one after this. It's just not the sermon for it today. Um, whether that's the Apostle Paul talking in, in uh, some of his letters or Jesus talking to the Pharisees and saying they've forgotten the weightier matters of the law or there, there, there's definitely sins which are worse than others. Quite frankly, the scriptures speak to that, but so too does, does our common sense. And, and friends, you would not want to follow a God or any leader who couldn't see the difference between like, like, um, you know, the, the murders that have been happening the last couple of weeks and a five-year-old who's mean to his sister for a minute. And if a leader or God could not recognize the difference in gravity between those two things, you would cease to believe that that God has a sense of justice, right? Um, there, all sins are not equal. I know why we say that. It's because of, of this idea, which is true, that none of us by our works are made right before God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is true, but that doesn't mean all sins are equal. Um, Jesus doesn't have a problem talking about a particular hierarchy and ordering of things. Neither does James in Acts chapter 15, neither does Paul in his letters, okay? But that's a, an aside. Um, I just want to disarm kind of some popular heresy right now. <laughs> so told you I'm riding a wave. Anyway, um, let's, let's see what Jesus says, which is the most important commandment of the law of Moses. He replies in verse 37, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So he puts this one at the top. He puts this one at the top. This is his answer. And he quotes, he doesn't introduce a new teaching they haven't heard before. As a matter of fact, for many religious Jewish people, they would have already been saying this very verse from Deuteronomy chapter six. They would have been saying this in the morning and at night, just about every day. In other words, he takes what they already know is core. They already know it's core. And they're by their actions, even probably professing that because they're repeating it like all the time. Right? And so he says, the first and most important thing is this. And, and they got to know, dang, that's the thing we say all the time. The first one is love the Lord your God. And he quotes Deuteronomy. Verse 39, and the second is equally like it. Or the second is likewise. Most, uh, most commentators and theologians think that what this is, how it's happening here in the Greek and in just the rhetoric, is that the second flows out of the first. And so the natural byproduct of this sec the first thing of loving God is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus. 
This is from Moses, right? Teacher, which is the most important commandment from the law of Moses. If you don't know, Moses, when they're talking about it this way, refers to the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Torah, sometimes it's called the Pentateuch. So if you've heard those words, that means the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is answering their question, this guy's question, from those books. And he says in verse 40, the entire law and all of the demands on the prophets are based on these two commands. So not only does he listen to their question, this guy's question, and sort of say, okay, what's the greatest commandment in the law of Moses? And he gives them two answers because he defines his own parameters. But then he says, not only are these the greatest commands in the, in the law of Moses, also all the prophets too. And when, when you ever you see law and prophets together in the New Testament, that means the whole Old Testament. That's honestly, that's what it means. I'm not trying to like um, reduce that or make it simple. That's actually just code in the Jewish community for what we would call the Old Testament before they had a New Testament, right? Um, and so Jesus is lifting this up and not only is it the greatest law in the law, or the greatest command in the law, this is actually the greatest stuff in all of what we would call the Old Testament. If I can just get into the weeds a little bit more, it's not even so specific as which command is the greatest. They're asking which kind of commands are the greatest. That's actually kind of at the root of what's being asked here. And Jesus is lifting up these commands that are talking about love. These are the ones that sit at the top. Jesus says that, that, that the law and the prophets depend upon them. The Greek word there is, is like, it means that something is hanging on it like on a hook or on a hanger. Imagine clothes draped over a hanger. All of the law and the prophets are draped on love. What happens when you take the hanger out? They crumple to the floor in a heap. All of the law and the prophets, any minutia, any significant command. Jesus, the Lord over all things, the one by whom, for whom, and through whom the law was even given. It says, if the whole thing hangs on love of God and love of, of neighbor, and with those gone, really with either one gone, but Jesus doesn't separate them. That's what's, that's what's crazy. Other people have summarized the law in different ways. Jesus binds these two together and says they're kind of like one. He's the kingdom of God's got weird math in it, I should say. He binds them together and without them, everything else crumples to the ground. So you're, you're going to church, you're doing your Bible studies, you got, you're abstaining from certain practices, you're not cussing, you're whatever, you're giving to the poor, whatever. If, you are, if love is not there, all of it falls to the ground. Our, our, the passage of scripture that we've been sort of focusing on all semester is 1 Corinthians 13. It's been a bit incognito. It's been underground. It kind of frames the whole sermon series, but we haven't been preaching out of it, so to speak, every week. We'll, we're going to hit it harder here in the next couple weeks. But, but at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul says, if I, have the tongue of, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, if, I, if I have the prophetic gifts, if I penetrate the knowledge of God and the mysteries of the universe, or if I have faith to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have to the poor, even giving up my body to be burned, oh, I could boast. But without love, I've gained nothing. You see, all of this stuff, 
like the ability to teach and articulate, to speak, to connect, to under, to be understood, or the or the the accumulation of knowledge and spiritual insight, or the acts of power and victory and miracles through your life, or all of the charity and justice you can muster, all of that without love, Paul says, is nothing. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I'm quite convinced because of our cultural teaching that, that we get kind of some of the first, we get some of the second piece of this, the love neighbor piece. Like, if, if I say that I love God, but I don't love my neighbor, or, or John would say in 1 John, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. I'm gonna repeat that because it hits hard. That's like a hard hitter. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother or your sister, then you're a liar. And the love of God is not in you. John says, like this stuff is so synced up that John thinks it's impossible for you to love God if you don't love your brother. We live in a culture, I think that's it's kind of an agreement with that. So like a follower of, G, or somebody who proclaims to be a follower of Jesus, that like reads their Bible, goes to church, but, but is not very kind to others. We have a hard time believing it because the fruit that we expect to see is love of neighbor. We live at a time where we identify with the kingdom without the king. We have a vision for some kind of justice and, and compassion for neighbor. Obviously, looking at the murders that exist and the polarization of our culture, we're all defining our own rules and we're all you know, self-selecting and we're all exclusionary in certain ways, I know. But, but in the pop cultural rhetoric, we all think loving neighbor is good until we have to love our neighbor. But we all think it's good in theory. And so maybe some of this you don't have a problem with. Maybe you're already teed up for this because of the discipleship of our culture, right? Like that we ought to love our neighbor, that you can't love God and hate your neighbor. You're a liar. And interestingly enough, get this, Jesus doesn't say love the world. And I'm not trying to come against the world. I just think his teaching is so good because how many people um, have a heart that breaks for the homeless but don't know a homeless person? How many people right now are anti-racist but aren't friends with anybody who's not their skin color? I'm just gonna, they're not white, <laughs> generally, okay? Uh, the, how, how many people have a general conviction but not a peculiar act of love to back it up? And Jesus doesn't say the second command, which is like the first one, is to love the world. He says, love your neighbor. Here's the implication. Love the person that you're bumping into. You might think that you're loving your neighbor. You might think you're loving like God's called you to love. Would your roommate say that? Would your professor say that? Would your ex say that? Would your friend say that? And I, friends, I'm not actually just, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty as I say this. I'm saying this is the way that love is pushed forward in the commands of Jesus. It's not abstract and it's not inner feelings. It's actions of love being demonstrated and bearing fruit in our lives. Jesus's command is that you and I don't need to shoulder the world's problems. His shoulders are broad and he is good. He has just said, whoever you're bumping into today, if you want to know how all the law and the prophets are summarized, if you want to know the work that I've been about from the beginning, it's love me and love whoever you bump into today with all that you got. I don't, I think we have a problem with the particularities of that. I do, but I think theoretically, I think all of us are probably already teed up for it. Like 
we ought to love people around us. I don't think we do very well. Um, and that's why most people in America right now, um, at least the buzz seems to be, most people in America do not think that Christians are very loving. It's why this, this person on Facebook could say, I don't need your thoughts and prayers. Because they, they don't see you show up. Guarantee if you showed up, if I showed up, if we were there, if our money and our time backed up our words, I don't know what this is, you know, our words. <laughs> uh, if our money, our time backed that up, I bet you this person would be okay with me saying I'm praying for you too, you know? But here's what's interesting about Jesus. He won't let us off the hook, so to speak. Because the first thing he says that's important is that we love God. And if we get this right, we get the other one right. Um, I know that we don't love God when we, when we don't love our neighbor. I know that. But many of us think we can love our neighbor without loving God. And, and let me give you uh, uh, kind of a story from my own life and then an example as it pertains to the ministry. So I've mentioned this before, I think, in Tuesday nights, but it still impacts me a lot. My kids, um, they want me to love them. But they want me to love their mom more. It's also other but they know that if the love between their mom and dad is not secure and safe, then they aren't either. And so I actually do this, like I remember like sitting down with Blythe and I'm like, hey Blythe, um, she's my middle child. And I said, Davey, who do I love more than anybody in the world? And she goes, mama. And I'm like, that's right. You know, <laughs> and she kind of grins and she gives me a kiss on the cheek and puts her arms around my neck. Like she doesn't feel jealous and she doesn't get insecure. As a matter of fact, she feels more safe with me because she knows I love her mom. And that creates the environment within which my love for her is more secure. It's something like that is going on here. You know, as a pastor to college students, I want you to imagine for a minute that I don't love God. I don't want you to imagine this actually, but that I don't love God and I'm just trying to love you. Do you understand what that's implying? that I actually have this capacity in and of myself to give you love and it's good for you. And what that says about my own ego and my own resources, also about my wisdom and insight that I know how to love you apart from my love of God who made you. You know what happens in the end? What happens is I begin to run out of my own resources and I'm in despair. And so then what I want is for you to respond to my love in a way that I need your resources, but you don't have enough either. And so then I despair because of you. And then because I put God's name on all this work, then I despair at God. It's just a cycle of despair as we all sort of mutually try to get what we can from one another and pull each other into the depths of despair. Here's the trick. When I want to love you, it sends me back to God who made you who sustains you right now by the word of his power and will bring you to his redemptive end. He knows how to love you far better than I do. He knows how to love my wife better than I do and my kids better than I do. And so I, even when I just want to love others, I go to him when I'm in my right mind to learn how to love you. You are so safe with him because he will never be manipulated by me against you. He always has your interests and in front of his attention. I am not the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is. And in him, he makes all of us. He brings all of us into the center with him. But it's not me alone. And Jesus gets this order right. We love God first. 
And because God has made it clear that he has loved everybody else, that in him Jesus Christ is the reconciler. He is the one who makes strangers friends. He is the one who makes enemies family. In him, heaven and earth are, are, are wrapped up together so much so. He, he, in his hours of despair before the cross, prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Love God first. And if we're doing that, it's going to naturally overflow into the love of neighbor. And, and what this kind of breaks down to practically for me is I always know if I'm loving God right by how I'm loving others. And I don't, I'm not trying to set me up for like a grade here. I just mean the, the tree is evidenced by its fruit. If I'm going to like Bible studies and I'm a turd at home, th- th- something's off. You know, John would say I'm a liar and the love of God's not in me. You know, if I'm, if I'm praying because I'm trying to be devoted to God and remember him before a meal at a restaurant, but the server has to sit there for 30 seconds and wait for me to be finished, I think maybe I've gotten this off. Because maybe God has asked me to give thanks in all circumstances. He has. That's actually a verse, and he tells us to give thanks a lot. For sure. But all of it's ordered under love. The ordering of these things is eminently important. I know that every single one of us listening is prone to love God or love neighbor. I know that we sort of err on one side or the other. Christian, these things are bound up together in Jesus. He lifts them up and says, this is the work he's been about from the very beginning. He made the whole world by love and in love and for love. He, he, when he is looking back over the entirety of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, this whole thing is about love of God and love of neighbor. And he is setting up a kingdom in which that is the norm day in and day out. And I know the world is crying for something to change. And God, while he waits, I don't, and that's frustrating at times. And the scriptures are not silent about it. In the meantime, while we wait for him to come again to make all things new, he is sending his church into the world as people of love, not as people of talk. I bet you're tired. If you're not a Christian or if you're like on the bottom rung of your experiences right now, I don't want you to hear a big command. I want the church to come alongside of you. I want somebody to join you where you are and I want you to experience love from somebody who's in love with God. But if you're even on the second rung, will you remember Jesus who poured out himself and took on the nature of a servant? Who Remember Jesus who didn't come to be served but to serve? As you look toward the money that you'll make and the careers that you'll have and the romances that you want to get into and the places you want to see and the things you want to do and the places you want to go, or maybe I'm repeating myself, all that stuff, will you look to how God is giving you anything in order to give to others? Will you look at the one who leads you and invites you to be like him, to be little Christs, which is what Christian means, and when you look for how he has called you to love like he loves, don't you know that on, on that Thursday night that he was betrayed, a week from this Thursday, we celebrated as a church, that Jesus looked at his disciples on that night and he said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, by your sexual purity. Nope. 
by your Bible study. Nope. By your theological correct, like astuteness. Nope. By the fact that you don't ever get your words wrong when you talk about theology, which is like the same thing, but some of you didn't understand the first one. Nope. By the fact that I do quiet times in the morning. Nope. Church attendance. Nope. Cussing or lack thereof. Nope. The fact that I'm not like those people. Nope. Sexual orientation or how I respond to people of different sexual orientations. Nope. You know how people know you're Christians? By your love. And what's going to be really important in the coming weeks is that we break that down because love is not something that Jesus leaves it up for us to define. At one point, in, in, he says, you know, love is laying down your life for a friend. Another point, he says, love like I've loved you, and that's not up for grabs. Like we have concrete stories of how Jesus loved us, and we're to love like that. And so we know love is not a feeling. It's not an affirmative sort of notion in our hearts. It's embodied action on behalf of another's dignity. That's love. You can define it any way. You can't define it any way you want. You can define it lots of different ways that are in accordance with how Jesus talked about love. Our culture can define love however it wants. But for followers of Jesus, friends, I point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I point you to John 13 through 17. We're going to break that down in the coming weeks because I'm still thinking like 20 years ago, sort of in some of the circles I run in, this guy famously said, um, you know, I love my wife and I love tacos. Words matter, and something's broken. When I tell my son that I love him, and then I also the next night say I love spaghetti. And I, my son knows what love means at an intuitive level, but somewhere there's gotta be circuits that are getting crossed. When, he, when he's like, how come my dad uses the same word to try to affirm the depth in me that he uses to talk about pasta? And so we need to break that down. We need to have a better understanding of what love is because it's too easy for us to say that we love a bunch of things right now. But all of us are living in communities where we don't actually experience acts and the fruit of love, right? So we're going to get to that. But for tonight, in light of the cultural moments that we're going through right now, in light of a world that's in despair and crying out for love and justice, what would it look like, Christian, if we began to be people of love? Now, I'm asking it at a global sort of cultural maybe level Let's take it more home. What would it look like if your roommates, if your exes, if your siblings, if your professors, if your classmates, if the people that you serve at work, if the people you work under at work, what would it, if your teammates, what would it look like if to them they were like, man, this person's made of love? If you're watching or listening to this tonight, I want you to, um, to spend just a couple of minutes responding to what Jesus has to say in our text tonight from Matthew 22. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to ask this question. Is it easier for you to love... Wait, no, ask it the other way. Is it harder for you to love God or love others? And why? Is it harder for you to love God or love others? And why? And I don't want you to correct each other and judge each other. That's a vulnerable thing to talk about. Please be humble. Love builds up. It doesn't puff up. It doesn't, you don't, get, you don't get excited about other people being silenced like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like let people talk and just wonder and be kind and listen to them. And then would you guys, after you collect everybody's responses, just hear everybody. Is it harder for you to love God or love others? And why will you just say thank you, and then somebody in your context just lead a time of prayer. Asking the God who does love us would help us to love him and love others. And I want to end with this. Jesus says, 
Love the Lord your God. And Dale Bruner, a Bible commentator, says that that summarizes the whole gospel. Jesus doesn't even say love God. He says, love the Lord your God. Even before he asks you to do a thing, God has already made himself yours. Friends, this is not an invitation for you to get yourself straight so that God might love you. God has already decisively loved you and he continues to love you still. And he's exemplified that not just in your creation and in the creation of the cosmos, but in the sending of his son on our behalf and in the sustaining of the world until everybody has the chance to respond to him even still. He has made, it's the most preposterous claim that the Lord of all creation has made himself yours. In light of that Christian, Love him and love others. Lord, have mercy. Lord, come quickly. And in the meantime, equip and empower and send your church to be people of love that the world might know that you love them. Amen, amen, and amen. I love you, friend. Good night.